If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as we read together verses 1 through 8. Those watching both here in the United States and overseas on our live stream broadcast, if you're at home this morning and you have the opportunity, open up your Bible, sit it on your lap, perhaps along with a notepad and something to write with as we enter into studying God's Word together. Each Sunday morning, we intentionally design our service so that it climaxes in the study of God's Word, because we are convinced, as generations of Christians have since the very beginning, that God speaks to us through the pages of His Word. And this morning, we're continuing a brief series called, What Do You Believe? Faith and Culture. And so we're coming to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the Apostle Paul, having spent a good deal of time in the first three chapters, talking about what it means to have a relationship with Christ, grow and mature in that relationship, he now encourages them how to live it out. And so in chapter 4, he writes, Finally, brothers, we instruct you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the, in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. Over these last weeks together, as we have begun to explore faith and culture, we have suggested this, that we are exploring and navigating our way around some of the cultural landmines and hot topics of our day. And we will touch on issues of human sexuality, abortion, sexual identity, and marriage. And over the last few weeks, we've been doing exactly that. And we've found ourselves dealing with some controversial and sensitive topics from time to time. But we've had a slight break the last two weeks because two weeks ago we had a very exciting and spectacular missions weekend. Then last weekend it was a communion Sunday when with congregations across the entire world we had World Communion Sunday. And so this morning we're coming back to our current series, What Do You Believe? Faith and Culture. In other words, how do you live out your faith day by day in a way that is credible and authentic? Because as Christian folks, we're convinced that it's not enough to say one thing on Sunday morning and then ignore it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. In fact, we say the opposite. We say our walk must equal our talk. And we believe that to be true in the way we raise our children or our grandchildren the way we interact with colleagues at work, people in our neighborhood. We are absolutely convinced that as we read and study Scripture on Sunday morning, that it must impact 
us and that we intentionally, prayerfully seek to grow in our relationship with Christ as we are obedient to His call and live out our faith. And that's very similar to where the Thessalonians were. And that's why Paul writes to them in this very practical passage about some sensitive issues. But before we get there, let me remind you where we were when we came to kind of a little intermission in our studies together. Three weeks ago, we looked at a change in culture. If you were with us then, you remember some of this. I am not for a moment expecting you to remember everything I said three weeks ago. I can't remember everything I said three weeks ago either, so I don't expect you to remember. But what I do want to do is give you a quick reminder of where we were in order to move into our passage this morning. And three weeks ago, we began to ask the question, where does a sense of identity and a sense of worth come from? Historically speaking, and by historically, I mean 20, 20, 25 years ago, our culture said our sense of value, self-worth, came from family and friends. It came from the community you lived in. It usually happened when an individual surrendered his or her needs for the sake of family and friends and community. And validation and self-worth were bestowed upon you as you cared for and served others and put others first and self last. And I still hear that today. When I meet with someone, they'll say, Richard, you'll never believe what my adult son or my adult daughter or their family did for me a couple of weeks ago. And then they go on to tell me about a time where that young couple sacrificed their own time, their own resources in order to serve parents or grandparents. And so that validation, that sense of encouragement, self-worth came from outside of the individual. But today, some 20, 25 years on, in what's called, that was a modern culture, this is called a postmodern culture, things have changed. There has been a massive cultural shift. And so today, you determine your own validation and self-worth. You determine your own standards, values, and behavior. And you do this through self-expression and self-exploration not on the basis of reason or even fact or objective standards, but on the basis of how you feel and what you want. You define yourself. You are determined by your own deepest desires. And the expectation is that you will be honored for who you are and how you assert those desires, especially against claims from groups like family, friends, community. The culture and society around you must now align yourselves or themselves with you. And you hear it in a popular sense expressed like this. You should not let anyone tell you who you are. Your worth is not determined by or dependent on anyone else. You validate yourself and should be encouraged, celebrated, and supported for who you are. And so that's where we are culturally. It's no longer that an individual discerns the truth. The individual now determines what is true. 
And that causes us some problems from time to time as a society and a culture. Let me give you an example. Because with that view comes an incoherence. And the trouble with this exclusively individualistic approach and living off your feelings is that it is incoherent. Let me give you an example. And if you remember back three weeks ago, you'll remember I gave several examples, but this is a reasonable example, and it's a ridiculous example simply to make the point. Imagine a young dad, 38, 39, sits down with his six-year-old and his eight-year-old and looks at them in the eye and says, I want to be absolutely clear with you with what I'm about to say. Because I have to tell you, at 38 and 39, my sense of fulfillment, my sense of satisfaction, my sense of self-worth is not being encouraged, supported, and endorsed by either of you two. And therefore, I'm leaving you. Now, that, of course, is ridiculous. But that's the natural end to that exclusively individualistic mindset that I will determine how I feel, who I am, my self sense of self-worth. And then the young dad goes on to say, and I hope you will encourage, support, and celebrate my decision. Now, of course, it's ridiculous. But that's inevitably where that sense of value and self-worth is determined only by the individualistic emotions and feelings at the moment. And not only is it incoherent, at times it's incredibly fragile. Affirmation and external validation are considered crucial in a 21st century cultural context. And when you disagree, it is perceived as a personal attack. You are invalidating the person, oppressing and restricting their rights to be themselves. And so it becomes incredibly fragile. On the one hand, they're saying, I have every right to determine who I am, but you better celebrate me. You better encourage me. You better be there to support me. So what happened to the strong individual who had self-fulfillment? Then you have that fragility and incoherence going on. Now, some of you are already saying, okay, Richard, cultural identity today is not about fitting in, and I get that, but rather it's about standing out. I'm special, and you must celebrate, support, and approve of me. I'm capable of great things, and you're invalidating me and my choices. And so we begin to ask ourselves, okay, this is the cultural context that we as individuals, as families, as a society live in. But Richard, how on earth does any of that tie up with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Where is the connection? Bridge that gap for me. Help me to see and understand what's going on here so that this week I will try to live out my faith. Help me here, please. Well, let me try to do just that. And it begins in this way. The Apostle Paul first visited the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica 
back in AD 49 to 50. And you'll find it in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. If you have a few moments this week, it's certainly worth a read. It will give you a little more of the contextual backdrop of what's happening. And when the Apostle Paul visited there, he realized pretty quickly that it was an ancient city. It had been founded in the 4th century BC. Geographically, it had a strategic position with a good natural harbor. It contained via Ignatia, the main route between Rome and the east. It was an important center for business and trade. Thessalonica became the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And in fact, if you visit Greece today and you go to Athens, head straight north, and you'll come across the city of what is called in Greece Thessaloniki. And it is the second largest city in Greece still today, and it's a spectacular visit. Now, having said all of that, remember what we said at the beginning? The first three chapters when we were reading this passage, Paul focuses on a relationship with Christ. He focuses on the need for that relationship to mature and move to the next level, to develop and grow. And now as he comes to chapter 4, he becomes very practical. He's now dealing with the nuts and bolts of living out your faith. And that's why he now writes, we instruct you how to live in order to please God. And as Christian people, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to raise our children in a manner that pleases Him. We want to raise our children and model for them integrity and character, marriage, personality. We want them to see that we take prayer seriously, that our faith is of significance and value to us, that it matters in a 21st century context how to live out your faith. And that's exactly what he's saying to them then. We instruct you how to live a life in order to please God. And he goes on to say, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now, that's an awful lot, so let me pause a second and try and break it down for you. I'm looking at the third line down. The passage says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, sanctified is a New Testament word that means simply this. Sanctification is a process. It's a process of growing in your faith. It's a process of becoming more Christ-like. It's a process by which you intentionally, prayerfully are obedient to the call of God in your life and want to live out your faith in every aspect of your life. And that's why Paul says it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And sometimes when people come to me and the question I am asked, probably more than any other question is, what is God's will for me in this situation? And that's always a great question to get. But I go to this passage and I say, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, living for Him, listening to Him, obeying Him, being as close to Him as you possibly can. And if you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember the great phrase from John 15, remain in me. That's the process of sanctification. And then Paul says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And now, 
boy, oh boy, does he get down to it. Now he's getting to the brass tacks, and he's saying, sanctify that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now, why is Paul saying that? Why does that matter? Well, it matters for this reason, that our walk must equal our talk. We cannot talk of holiness. We cannot talk of purity and then live any old way we like. That borders on and is, in fact, not borders on, forgive me for that, that becomes hypocrisy. And Paul is saying you can't live like that. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says these words, at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and become one with his and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Now, why does Jesus say that? He says it for a number of reasons. Back in Genesis chapter 2, you read these words and they're identical. In Ephesians chapter 5, you read those words are there again. And what Jesus is saying is at the beginning, as part of our created order, men and women were made for each other. And the physical act of intimacy is one of God's great, spectacular, joyous gifts. But there's so much more to it than simply the physical act. Now, notice the language again. And Jesus says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Let me explain. When I conduct a marriage ceremony, I often stand right here. The bride and groom come down that aisle, and they go out that aisle. And I explain to them in the course of the service, inquire, you can see this so much better than anyone. When they come down that right-hand aisle, they come down is me and I and mine. And when they go out that aisle, they go out as we. And in the course of the service, I will say to the couple, from this moment on, everyone you know will treat you differently because you're no longer an individual. You are now a married couple. And I tell them that the state of South Carolina will treat you differently. The federal government will treat you differently, and they will treat you differently on a legal basis. And marriage is not some haphazard thing that we stumble into. It is for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, so long as we both shall live. And the act of physical intimacy in the middle of it is an expression of that commitment that has already been made, not simply legally, but absolutely legally. And then emotionally as well, and relationally. And that's why we have marriage vows. From this moment on, I commit myself to you. There is an exclusive nature to it, rightly so, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, forever united 
together. And it's out of that commitment of lifelong, exclusive nature of married life, then the expression of love is seen in that intimate physical act. So much greater, so much richer, so much deeper. Because the couple knows that the body cannot act in a manner that the heart and mind and soul object to. And the physical act is not enough. But when the whole person is utterly, prayerfully committed to each other, then that love grows sweeter and deeper and richer. And that's why in the middle of the ceremony, I will often say to my the couple in front of me, it is hard for you to imagine, but in the years ahead, you may well find yourself loving each other at a whole new level. And they look at me and think, he's no idea how much I love her. He's no idea how much I love him right at this moment. But after 43 years of marriage, I can tell you it does get sweeter and deeper and richer when there is that wholehearted, exclusive commitment. That's what's going on here. It's not simply an empty piece of paper or a form of words. It's so much richer. That's what's going on. And notice, nor is it legally, nor is there an emotional commitment. Of course, there is lifelong, exclusive nature to it as well. So much involved there. And of course, there's a vulnerability. There's a transparency in giving yourself to each other. That's why Paul says it is so important. Stay away from sexual immorality. It will destroy the soul. That's why when adultery takes place, the injured person immediately feels betrayed. They feel belittled. They feel traumatized. And the wound is deep and takes a long, long time to get over. That's how sacred it is. And that's why when it comes to sexual immorality, Paul is saying, stay away from it. Do not let your eyes wander. Don't let your mind wander. Stay away from the deceptive, enticing, addictive nature that is involved in giving in to that kind of sin. And please, please hear me when I say this. If you are involved in looking at screens and living off of the stimulus you receive when it comes to sexual immorality, please, please, please stop. If you are emotionally attached to someone who is not your husband or wife, and you shouldn't be, stop it. Give it up. Walk away from it. It will end in tears and hurting you and everyone else around you. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, so long as you both shall live. If you play with fire, you will be burnt. Galatians chapter 1 is crystal clear. God is not mocked. Your sin will find you out. 
And rather than finish on that note, come with me over here and understand the other side of that coin, that the love and the grace that God grants to us in a marriage scenario does get sweeter and deeper and richer when you are committed to it when you make it a priority, when you're willing to work at it, and when you say, Father, breathe new life into my relationship with my husband and wife. Or if you're single and looking for a spouse, Father, grant me a godly man or woman that I can marry, that I can live out my faith, that two will become one. And that's why in these Sundays we are dealing with sensitive controversial issues, but for the life of me, I cannot see anything controversial in what I've said this morning. I just can't. It's the most natural thing that Christian people believe, but our culture would tell us that such behavior and such belief is primitive, out of touch, archaic, dangerous, because when you dismiss holiness and purity, you don't have to live up to it. But as Christian people, we must. And our value and our self-worth and who we are and what it is that defines us comes from His love and His grace. So this week, if you've wandered from the things of God, it may be time to come back. If this week you've put your marriage on hold for whatever reason, it's time to make it a priority again. Holiness, purity, sanctification matter. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this challenge to our lives this morning. Enable us, please, to avoid sexual immorality. Help us in our own minds and hearts and souls to name it for what it is and to live above it blessed by you, equipped by you, encouraged by you. Help us, please, to resist the temptation that is around us and live in a way that is holy and honorable. Father, we are conscious that sin is alive and well and tempts us in ways that we would rather it does not. And when we find ourselves in such positions, help us, please, to come back to the cross and understand again all that you have achieved for us and help us to live in the light of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.